went home today and I was reminded of something that my dad told me years ago when I went into the ministry. He said, son, my dad was just a country lay guy. He wasn't in the ministry. But he said to me, he said, I won't tell you, I've been observing for years preachers. And he said, there are three things that you need if you're going to be successful in ministry. He said, number one, find you a good wife. Number two, always run with good musicians. And number three, drive a pickup truck. <clears throat> That's what he told me. He said, because a good wife will make you, good musicians will cover a lot of sermons, and if you don't have a pickup truck, everybody that has one will dread seeing you coming for fear they're going to, I think you're going to ask them to use their truck. So I now have all three. So I have done that today with musicians, and thank you so much, Brother Matt. You are so talented and have so many wonderful musicians in your church and a choir, and thank you, Brother Blake. Uh, I love your preacher. I mean that sincerely. He has become a dear friend, and of course, both of my daughters and son-in-laws and grandkids are in your church, and uh, they speak of him so often, and I can uh, very kind, so those kinds of words, but it's very reflective of him too, and very accessible, and I just love that, and I love that spirit. And for so many of you who have been longtime friends, someone asked me this morning, when was the first time I ever spoke at First Baptist in Decatur? And they were surprised at my answer. It was in 1974. I was a 14-year-old boy, and a man named Ewell Russell asked me to speak to his Sunday school class. Now, that wasn't the main auditorium service, you understand, but uh, it took me, I think, about 20 years to get over that to get invited back to do something. So, uh, but that was a very precious moment back then, and so many of you have been longtime friends, and many of you, uh, by the way, I should have said this morning, too, I'm excited because your choir is going to be, I think, part of uh, the mass choir that we're going to be doing in Pigeon Forge uh, this fall at our celebrators. Now, I don't want you to get nervous, but we're tracking. We're probably going to have between nine and 10,000 people that night for that service. And, of course, former President George Bush is going to be there. It's not a political night. He, this will be his fourth trip that he's done this at, with us. But it's a night when we just honor those who've served in our countries. It's just going to be a, a really a, a wonderful, wonderful night. But you'll also sense that I love senior adults. Actually, there are no senior adults no more. We just have mature adults. Uh, nobody wants to be one. That's why they've done away with most of those discounts for senior adults because they couldn't ever get nobody to admit it. You know, man comes in, 95 years of age. We knew, oh, I'm not a senior adult. They'd rather pay extra and be considered anything but a senior adult. But I tell you one of the things that I have jokingly done through the years with senior adults is I have told them, you know, if, if they've lost their spouse and maybe they're a widow or widower, it's okay to date. Now, they always come to me and say the same thing. Brother Phil, I'd like to, but my kids are a little concerned. And I say, your kids aren't concerned about you dating. Your kids are concerned about the, somebody getting their stuff. That's what your kids are worried about. So just keep that in mind. But I tell them it's okay to start dating again. And so we had a lady uh, here in town that's a sweet friend. She's now married. I won't call her name. But uh, she told me one day, she actually wrote me a note, and she said, Brother Phil, she said, I lost my husband 13 years ago. He passed away. And about five years ago, at the time she wrote me the note, she said, a, a gentleman asked me out for a date. And I wanted to go, but I was a little uncomfortable. I didn't know whether I should go, shouldn't go. And said, well, I finally agreed to go and said, I've been dating now for about five years. And she said, you know, I, I, there are no books on dating when you're a senior adult. You just have to do it by trial and error. 
She said, but I've learned a few things, and I wish you would share this as you travel. So at her request, I share with you what she called the five rules for dating if you are a widow. She said, rule number one is you've got to look for a man that has integrity, that will always tell you the truth. Number two, you need to look for a man with a sense of humor, help you laugh, have a good time. Number three, you need to look for a handyman so he can fix things around your house. Number four, you need to look for a man that's got a little money so he can take you to nice restaurants and nice places. And she said, and rule number five is you need to make sure them four men don't know each other. So I thought I would share that with you tonight. <laughs> Maybe a little helpful. Well, I want you to go ahead and open your Bible tonight to the gospel according to Luke chapter 15. It's a familiar story, and we'll reference it tonight. But I want you to know tonight, before we even begin, that you're in a safe place. And I don't mean that physically. I mean that emotionally, and I mean that spiritually. Because there, many times people think they're the only one who has a child or a grandchild or a loved one who has walked away. And so you feel isolated, but you're in a safe place tonight. I want you to know before I begin, it's okay if you need to shed a tear. No one will think less of you. And I want you to know tonight, this is a place where you can be open and honest with the Lord and with yourself about your pain. We all know the story of the prodigal son. It should be called the story of a wonderful father because the focus of the story is the father, not the son. And we won't read all of the story because you're familiar with it, but notice in verse 17 of Luke 15 that the scripture says, and when he, the wayward, rebellious, prodigal son, came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now notice those two words, make me, because they stand in contrast to what he said in verse 12 when he said, Father, give me. Somewhere between the give me of verse 12 and the make me of verse 19, there were some things that happened in his life. And then in verse 20, he said, and he rose and came to his father. And yet when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Several years ago, I was invited to speak in a church where I did not know the pastor well. We had mutual friends, and through that friendship, he invited me to come and to speak at a special service on Sunday morning. I remember we had the service. It was a wonderful service, and we concluded, and the pastor, his wife, and I went to a restaurant to have lunch. And because we didn't know each other, we did the routine of sharing about our families and I remember they shared with me that they had five boys, all adults, all living away from home. And over the course of our conversation, they told me about four of their sons, how they were active in church, serving the Lord, doing a lot of things in the community. But there was one son they never mentioned, and I didn't ask about him. I just thought that would be the polite thing not to ask, so I didn't, and they never mentioned him. But after I returned home, several weeks later, the pastor's wife wrote me a letter. And in essence, she said, Brother Phil, I apologize for failing to tell you about our fourth son because he is our prodigal. Like the others, he grew up going to church. 
He sang in the youth choir. He went on all the youth camps. He did everything people do. As you grow up in church, he was the one probably who seemed to enjoy church the most. In fact, if I had to pick one of our five sons that would go into ministry like their father, I would have picked our fourth son. But soon after he graduated from high school and he went to college, we began to hear reports that he was involved with some things that broke our heart. Before long, he came home and informed us that he had decided to quit college and he was going to get married. We suspected, kind of in a way, and later confirmed that the girl he was going to marry was already expecting their first child. Well, they married. The child was born. All seemed well, she said in her letter. And then one day he began having an affair with a woman where he worked. So he left his wife and child. He moved in with her, but that relationship did not last long. Then there was another and another, and she said in her letter, today we have communication. He lives out of state, but we know when we talk to him, we're to never mention God or church or spiritual things. Then she said in her letter, but Brother Phil, I'd like to ask you two questions. What do we do wrong? How can you have five boys grow up in church, go to the same church, same pastor, go to the same youth camp, same school, all those things are the same. Four of them serve God and one becomes a prodigal. With that child, what do we do wrong? And then she said, and what can we do now to get our child back into a right relationship with the Lord? Well, I don't have to tell you that was not the first time I've heard those questions. As a traveling preacher, there is rarely a week almost rarely a day goes by now that someone does not tell me about their son or daughter or grandchild who is making poor decisions, has addictive behavior, involved in things that are breaking their hearts and sometimes even breaking financially the family. And those people always ask those same two questions. What do we do wrong? And what do we do now? So I said, I'm on a journey to try to answer those two questions. So I read books, and I found there's very few books that have been addressing those questions. Now, there are books that are testimonies, you know, the story of a prodigal who came back to the Lord or a parent who went through that experience, but it was more their story. No one really trying to answer those questions. And then I, I started, well, I listened to preachers and found very few have addressed that, and I'm very reluctant to address things where I've had no experience and in the classical sense of the word, I haven't been a prodigal by classical definition. And so I dealt, well, this is really not for me, so I pushed it away. But have you ever had those experiences in your life when you push something away, the Holy Spirit pushes it back? Well, that was one of those experiences for me. And it seemed every week more and more people were asking me that question. And the more I researched and studied the Scripture, and though I understood the Scriptures in context, I still was flustered because I could not answer those two questions. So I remember one night I preached in Missouri, and the service, the focus of the service had nothing to do with even family that night, and we concluded the service, and I was greeting people, and this lady who i never met walked up to me, and she said, may I speak to you a moment? So we stepped off to the side. Actually, we sat on the front row, and she looked at me, and she said, uh, while you were preaching tonight, I don't really know what you preached because my mind was somewhere else, but she said, while I was sitting there, the Holy Spirit told me I was to tell you about my daughter who was obviously making some very poor choices. And then she said, and the Lord said, I was to ask you two specific questions. What did I do wrong and what do I do now? 
Well, I tried to encourage her, prayed with her, but I went back to my hotel room and I said, Lord, this has reached a point of no return. Either you must remove this burden from my heart or you must give me insight. One of two things must happen. I cannot go on hearing these questions without being able to help people. So I said, Lord, either totally remove the burden or give me insight. And I said, and Lord, while you're deciding what you're going to do, I'm going to bed. And I went to bed and I went to sleep. At around 2 in the morning, it was like someone walked in and flipped on the lights. I got out of bed, took a piece of paper, started writing. Not ideas, not thoughts, but I was writing names of people that I knew well who were prodigals. Or some who were prodigals who recently had gotten right with God. And I wrote a name and another name and another name. And when I finished, I think there were 30 names on the list. And everything you can imagine was represented. There were a couple of kids that were good moral kids. They just weren't interested in spiritual things. They didn't go to church. Every kind of addiction you can imagine, every kind of sexual sin you can imagine. Even one was incarcerated for a serious felony where he probably spent the rest of his life. They represented everything you can imagine if you made a list of prodigals. And when I looked at that list, suddenly the Holy Spirit told me what I was to do. When I returned, I contacted all 30. And I said, look, I'm not going to preach. I won't even comment if I can ask you some questions and you tell me the truth. And over the next few months, I listened to their stories. And as I listened to their stories, suddenly everything I had read in Scripture came into focus. And out of that experience, I want to share with you tonight what I call the six principles for getting your son or daughter, your prodigal, back to God. Here's principle number one. And it's the one you can start practicing tonight. If you want to see your, your prodigal come back to the Lord, you must learn to live guilt-free in your Christian life. You see, when people ask, what did I do wrong? Let me tell you what they're asking. Preacher, apparently I failed as a parent. I made, apparently I made a wrong decision. Because the waywardness of my child proves I failed as a parent. And if you have a prodigal tonight, you know what you've done. You have gone back to the moment that child was born. You have relived every moment in his life trying to isolate the reason for their sinfulness. So you found yourself thinking, well, maybe if we'd lived in another town, maybe if we had gone to a different church, maybe if they had gone to a different school, maybe if I had forbid those friends to come to my house. You have analyzed everything, hoping you will find a reason for the sinfulness of your child. And so you sit here tonight, and you can't find one, and so you feel so guilty. You sit in church, and you don't want to sing. Sometimes you don't want to serve on a committee. You have this shame in your heart because of the decisions of your children and the waywardness of your children. And so you sit here tonight and you feel guilty. Well, before I tell you tonight, and I've done the research, by the way, I can tell you tonight what you did wrong. The answer is going to surprise you. But before I do, let me ask you a question. Why do you feel guilty? If you have adult children who are making poor decisions, why do you feel guilty? Because, Phil, I failed as a parent. I did something wrong. Well, let me see if I can help you with that just for a moment. There are two reasons I discovered parents feel guilty about wayward children. Reason number one is because they forget something that's very fundamental, and we know it to be true. We say it in church. We, we hear it preached in church. We know it, and we can apply it to other kids, but not to our own kids. You ready? 
all of us are sinners. All of us are bent toward sin. To put it another way, all our children, if they do what is natural, all become prodigals. You see, the real question is not why in a family of five is, is one a prodigal. The real mystery is why are four serving God? Because if a child does what is natural for them to do, they all walk away. But then there's another reason. People will say, but what about that verse? And it's one of the few verses in the Bible people can quote, but they can't tell you where it's found. They'll say, well, what about that verse in the Bible that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, that says, if I do it right, my kids turn out right. Oh, really? Can I tell you in short summary tonight that you can't find me three competent Hebrew scholars who believe that verse teaches if you do it right, your kids are guaranteed to turn out right. Some will tell you that it is a principle, it's not a promise. Others will tell you, well, it really refers to a particular interest a child has. For example, if you have a child that enjoys music and you train them in music, they will love music for the rest of their life. And still others will say, well, it has to do with the, with the training or the encouraging of a spirit, that if you take a child and you, you cause that child's spirit to be broken, like in an abusive situation, they can become rebellious and bitter and angry at the world and take it out on the world. All of that is possibilities, but nobody believes that I can find that understands Hebrew, that verse says, if you do it right, your kids always turn out right. But that's how most of us have read that verse. That's how most of us have heard that brush applied. So, but let me just ask you tonight, because when you say that in a service, somebody always comes and they want to debate me. And they'll say, but, but I just got to tell you, Brother Phil, I, I disagree with that. I think if you do it right, your kids always turn out right. Now, can I be totally transparent with you tonight? Most of the time, that is said to me by people who have no children. <clears throat> oh, they have kids but they're called imaginary kids. You have any friends that only have imaginary kids? You know, you'll meet them, they'll say, well, now, we don't have any children, but when we do, our children will never do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, they will. As a matter of fact, I tell people all the time, I think God's got a sense of humor. And you know what I believe God does? I believe when you're young and you don't have any children and maybe someday you want to have children and you don't have any children and you say, no child of mine will ever do that, God turns around and laughs and says, write that down. Write that down. And when the DNA committee gets together for your kids, they make sure they pull that file and what you said your kids would never do, they will do on an hourly basis. Can I get an amen? You know that's the truth. All right? So people sometimes still want to debate it. Or you have other people who will come and say, well, you know, we have 20 children and they're all missionaries around the world. And if everybody had parented as we parented, their kids would be. And I, you know, sometimes I say things for I think. I tend to say, well, you know, one of your kids still may become a prodigal before they die. The truth is, if you believe tonight that you do it right, it guarantees your kids always turn out right, then I'd like to ask you a Bible question. What did God do wrong with Adam and Eve? perfect father, perfect kids, in a perfect environment, and they walked away. You can be the world's perfect parent and still have children who walks away, but the enemy comes and whispers in your ear and say, it's all your fault. They are the way they are because of you, 
And so you go through life feeling guilty. And as I'll show you in a moment, if you feel guilty, not only will you never have the joy in your Christian life, but if you have that feeling of guilt, it emotionally paralyzes you and enables your prodigal, especially if they have addictive behavior, to manipulate you because of your guilt to getting what they want. So here's what you need to do tonight. You need to say, Lord, until the Holy Spirit shows me what I did wrong, I I will assume from this day forward I did nothing wrong and I'll never feel guilty again. And when you can learn to live guilt-free in your Christian life, you're on the road to helping your prodigal. Now, here's the second thing. Sometimes people say, but wait, preacher, I know what I did wrong. I know the sin I committed that affected my children. I know the anger outburst that affected my children. Okay, if there's something like that in your life or there's something the Holy Spirit showed you was wrong, then the second thing is go to your kids and ask for their forgiveness. I'm amazed how many times parents will say, I know what happened and it wounded my children, but you've never gone and said to them, I was wrong, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Now, I need to tell you, they may not grant you forgiveness, but when you ask for their forgiveness, it removes their excuses and the barrier. So you ask for forgiveness. Now, here's the third thing. You must love your prodigal unconditionally. Well, Brother Phil, I do. Oh, really? Well, can I challenge that? (laughs) When people tell me they love their kids unconditionally, I have to ask, well, do you have a child tonight that you hope Brother Blake and I never find out belongs to you? Have you ever laid your head on a pillow and privately thought, I wish that child had never been born? Or have you ever looked at other kids and found yourself thinking, Oh, I wish my kid was like that kid. Now, hear me carefully. Unconditional love is not based on performance. Unconditional love says, there is nothing you can do to make me love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make me love you less. Unconditional love is not based on performance. But what is important for Christians, especially when you have prodigals, is you have to understand that truth, and now you set that, and you, some of you may know what I mean when I say as your default mode, meaning you've already decided, regardless of what happens, I'm going to love my child unconditionally. If they become the next Billy Graham, it doesn't increase your love, and if they get put in prison for, for some horrible crimes I will not love them less. Now, when you set it as your default that you're going to love unconditionally, when bad decisions are made or when they do things, you will react properly and not in a way that does damage. Let me give you a story of two men who knew each other who faced virtually the same situation, show you how these two men reacted, and you see if you can identify the one that reacted with unconditional love. One man was what you would call a pillow member in the church. I mean, he was a Sunday school teacher, deacon, very respected in his community. I mean, just one of those guys, everybody would say, just an example of a Christian godly man. And one day he's home, and his teenage daughter came in and said, Dad, Mom won't tell you. She said, I have to tell you, but I'm going to have a baby. 
And of course, she wasn't married. And the man, by his own public testimony, got angry. He said, how could you? How could you? Don't, don't you know? Don't, don't you know my reputation? Don't you know my reputation in the church? And the more he talked, his anger, his voice began to rise, and his anger began to boil, and he looked over at her, and finally he started pounding on the coffee table, and he said, I cannot believe what you've done. You go to your room, you get your stuff, and you get out. I never want to see you. I never want to see this child, and as far as I'm concerned, you and this baby are dead. And she left. And he bragged about it. He told people, I put my foot down. <laughs> I took a stand against sin in my home. He bragged about it. About six months after that occurred in the church where he attended on a Sunday evening, the pastor walked to the pulpit after the music and said, I'm not preaching a sermon tonight. I just need to talk to you as my congregation. And with tears streaming down his cheeks, he said, my wife and I have learned this week that our daughter is going to be an unwed mother. We have cried a lot. We're embarrassed. But he said, I want you to know that my wife and I have made a commitment. We're going to stand with our daughter. We're going to support our daughter. We're going to love our daughter. And if that means that I need to step down as your pastor and take secular work, I will. But I want you to know tonight that while we are ashamed of what our daughter has done, we are not ashamed she's our daughter. And in front of the congregation, he went to his daughter, embraced her, and said, I love you. Two fathers, two daughters. Can I ask you? Which of those two daughters do you think is in church serving God today? It was the one who experienced unconditional love. And can I tell you something that I have learned as a preacher? I have learned the most powerful force in the world is loving somebody unconditional. Most of us will love conditionally when we feel it will affect our standing in the community or our reputation. But unconditional love says, my love for you is not based on performance. And when you love unconditionally, now you have put your prodigal in a position to come under deep conviction by the Holy Spirit. In fact, go back to the story in Luke 15. The father in this story was a Jewish man, a successful Jewish man. And in Jewish culture, it's hard for us to understand this, but in Jewish culture, the worst thing a boy could do was feed pigs. It was the worst. But wait, did you catch what all that young man had done? This young man went to a far country. To put it in context, this man, this young man renounced his citizenship. It would be like having a son or a daughter who suddenly gets up and says, I don't even want to be America. I hate America. And so they literally moved to a foreign country and began to denounce our country. That's what the young man did. Not only did he renounce his citizenship, this young man has taken his inheritance, which he got in advance, and he has wasted it. He had no regard for the hard work his father had done to, to build what his father had. And his father gave it to him, and he wasted all of it. And on top of that, to add insult to injury, he's feeding pigs. But if you read the story carefully, the father never stopped loving his son. Now, with that said, let me hasten to the fourth point, fourth principle. 
because it's the one where people get confused. The fourth principle is you must let your prodigal face the consequences of their choices. You see, some people think unconditional love means every time my kid's got a problem, I come in like the Lone Ranger and rescue them. No, unconditional love says, I love you so much, I'm going to let you face the decisions that you have made. Now, granted, the first time you can extend grace, I believe many times when, when kids make bad choices and there's bad decisions, the first time in many cases you can extend grace because sometimes kids do learn their lesson. But when behavior is repeated, you need to say, I love you, but I'm not going to rescue you anymore. I love you, but you know, I'm going to come see you every day in jail, but I'm not going to bail you out of jail. You know, I love you, but you know, it just, because of your addictions, you can't live in our home anymore. That's tough. And I, I'm asking you to leave, not because I don't love you. We love you unconditionally, but we cannot live in fear and threat. You're going to harm us or steal from us anymore. You know, unconditional love says, I love you so much, I'm going to let you face your choices, and if you've lost everything to gambling, I'm not paying the gambling debts anymore. Now, I challenge you to do this exercise. Go find anyone who has been a school teacher, especially at the high school level, anyone who's been a high school teacher, go talk with anyone who's been in law enforcement or in the legal system for any length of time, and they will tell you one of the biggest mistakes parents do make is we never allow our children to hear, son, daughter, you got to face the music. Instead, we rush in to try to say the, the teacher was wrong or the policeman was wrong or, or it's not fair in the legal system. And there may be some cases where that's true. But I have to tell you, when people are not allowed to face the consequences of their choices, get ready, the behavior is going to be repeated. And the father had enough wisdom in Luke 15 to allow his son to stay in the hog pen. Now listen to me. He could have sent a servant with soup and a sandwich. He could have sent him some money. Either way, it would have gotten him out of the hog pen, which would have saved the family a lot of embarrassment. But it wouldn't have gotten him home. And the father let him face the consequences of those choices. Now, here's the fifth principle. Along the way, you need to guard your words. Watch what you say. When I was interviewing those prodigals, one young man I interviewed, he said something, and I thought, I couldn't even write it better than that. He looked at me, and he said, i got to tell you, Phil, he said, I don't understand my mama. I said, really? No, I don't understand my mama. He said, she goes to church every Sunday, but she comes home from church telling me how sorry her preacher is, and she don't like the music at her church, and she don't like anybody in her Sunday school class. He said, as a matter of fact, now that I think of it, I don't think there's anybody at that church my mama likes. And she spends all week just talking about how terrible those people are and how, how they're hypocrites, and she just totally just, just annihilates them all week long. And then she's shocked on the next Sunday morning when I don't want to go to church with her. He said, why do I want to go to church with all those sorry people? You know, I've told people, sometimes I hear people say to me, I don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. And one day I was talking to a young lady, and it dawned on me, she's getting her information from people who go to that church. Now, hear me carefully. 
I know there are times there's issues and all of that, and there are people in the church, but do you realize the very person you may personally dislike in church may be the very person God wants to use in your prodigal's life? And so guard your words. And by the way, don't just guard your words while they're away. Guard your words when they come home. You know, if we had been the father in Luke 15, when this young man came home, you know what most of us would have said? Let's be honest. We would have crossed our arms and said, well, it's about time you come home. You want to explain where you spent all that money? Would you like to tell us all the pig pens you've been in? Would you like to go down here and just apologize to your older brother? He stayed here and worked all this time. And besides, don't you, wouldn't you like to just tell all the servants how you've just, you've just made a fool of yourself? And we would have lectured the returning prodigal. The father had enough wisdom to keep his mouth shut. The father said, nope, we're going to celebrate. In fact, I often tell parents now, let me just tell you from experience and might be helpful to you. If you have a child who's been wayward and a prodigal, I caution you, don't ask too many questions because you may not want to know all the places they've been. You think you worried before, you might be worrying more. There may be a time when they want to talk about it. There may be a time when they never want to talk about it. But the fact is, you still guard your words. And let me take that one step further. Let's be honest. Most of us not only want our children to come back to the Lord, we want our children to come back to our church. So what happens if your prodigal gets right with the Lord, especially if they live locally, and they start going to another church? You know what good Baptists do? Well, now, son, I know some people at that church. That church not quite cracked up what you think it is. They've got some problems at that church. And if we're not careful, we'll start criticizing that church, thinking we're going to bring our children back to our church, and we may drive them back to the pig pen. Matter of fact, what do you do if your children go to a church and it's not a Baptist church? That's even worse. As a matter of fact, I have a friend, he had a son who was, he was a prodigal. I called him a capital P prodigal. He, he had so many problems. He had gotten into trouble with the law. It was just a routine. He would call me and he'd say, pray for my boy. He's in trouble again. And he's in jail. And it was just this, this constant cycle he was going through. And he would call me, pray for my boy, pray for my boy. And finally one night he called me and he was crying. My friend called me and he was crying. And I just knew his son was in trouble again. And I said, what has he done now? He said, you're not going to believe it. You are not going to believe it. I said, well, try me. What has he done? He said, my boy got right with God. I said, that's wonderful. He said, it is terrible. I said, why is it terrible? He said, because he got right with God at the Assembly of God Church. And he's going to go to the Assembly of God Church. And I laughed. I said, listen, you shouldn't be upset about that. You should be rejoicing. Oh, but you don't know, Phil. They fall out in the floor, and they jump over pews, and they run around. I said, I, I know they're a little extreme in their worship. But I said, sir, listen, you've been praying for God to do something. If God used the Assembly of Gods to, to reach out to your prodigal and get him in church, you ought to be rejoicing. He said, but you don't understand. They fall out on the floor and they jump over pews. And I said, let me tell you something. I know that church. Their pastor is a dear friend. And I said, I, he will tell you, I will tell you, there's 51 verses in the Bible. We take a total different view on, but the rest of the book, we're on the same page. I said, you should be rejoicing. Oh, but you don't understand. They fall out in the floor and they jump over people. You ever have one of those moments you just want to grab somebody and shake them? And I finally, I said to him, I said, listen to me. Listen to me. 
Yes, I disagree with our assembly of God brothers, but do you understand they're going to heaven? Now, granted, some of them may go past it and have to turn around and come back, but they're going to heaven. And you need to be rejoicing that they were able to reach your prodigal. So let me tell you, you guard what you say because your words have power. And then here's the final principle. You pray specifically for your prodigal. Well, Brother Phil, I do. Well, can I help you with that? I've interviewed a lot of kids that wandered away who have come back to serve in the Lord. And when I listen to their stories, there are several things that sometimes come into their testimony, but there's two things I've noticed that one or both are almost in every testimony I hear. One of two things. There was a friend their age who had a heart for God and through the friendship nudged them back to the Lord. It might be um, the guy who coaches Little League with them. It might be somebody who's on a PTA council. It might be a neighbor across the road. But there's someone God's brought into their life, and through some common uh, love, maybe golf or sport or something, they've formed a friendship. But that person has a heart for God, and through that friendship, they nudge them back to the Lord. So the first thing you need to pray as you pray is, Lord, would you please bring into the life of my prodigal people that have a heart for you and allow them to have a friendship? And through that friendship, they can be instrumental in them getting their life right with God. But here's the second thing I've noticed, and this is the hardest prayer you will ever pray. I have to be honest. I've noticed in the testimony of a lot of prodigals, it is the sickness and or death of a parent or grandparent that causes them to evaluate their life. So are you willing tonight as a parent, and this is a tough prayer, to say, Lord, whatever it takes, even if I must suffer and die, I'm willing to do it to see my prodigal come back to you. Now, hear me carefully. I did not say tonight you're asking God to kill you. I didn't say that. I'm simply asking tonight, are you willing to say, Lord, whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. You see, if you can pray that prayer and mean it, all the other stuff's easy. Because it's sometimes we ask the Lord, Lord, change my prodigal. When really God is saying to you, I need to change you first. And part of that change is saying, Lord, whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. Several years ago in our office, one of my employees came to me. And he said, I got an idea. I said, okay. He said, um, <clears throat> why don't we have everybody bring their lunch on Wednesdays? And uh, let's do that for several weeks. And while we're eating, have one of our employees share their testimony. Now, I know all their testimonies, and I thought that was a good idea because some of them haven't shared. And, and now we have a monthly chapel with all of our staff. But then we said, we'll do that for several weeks. And so I gave him the assignment. He signed every one a week. Some weeks I was in town. Some weeks I was out of town. But it was just for an opportunity to everybody to share how they became a Christian with the other people who were on our staff. 
And so I looked at the list, and I noticed there was a Wednesday approaching when one of our employees at that time, I knew it was going to be very difficult for her to share because she was related to me on my mother's side of the family, and I've known her all of her life. Uh, She was actually born on my father's 40th birthday, which kind of made her like this promised child somehow, and and was the apple of his eye because of that, and known her all of her life, grew up in church, was a Christian, but while in college, made some very poor choices and wandered away from the Lord. But I also knew it was through the sickness and death of her grandfather that got her attention, and her grandfather was my uncle, my mother's oldest brother. And I knew the day was approaching for her to share, and I don't know if you know this or not, but I'll go ahead and tell you, the hardest people to share your story especially in front of an audience, is relatives. I don't know why, but that's the truth. And I knew it would be very hard for her to share if I was there. And so I remember I I thought, well, I'm in town. I need to be there. I don't need to be there. I wasn't really sure what to do. And I remember I I just prayed about it. I said, Lord, we don't know whether to be here or not. And, And the next day my wife called me and she said, look, we've been invited to this luncheon. We really need to go. And I said, okay, that's an answer to prayer. Tell them we'll go. We'll do that. And so the next day we went to the luncheon. But before that, that afternoon, I went into her office and I said, hey, I got to tell you something. Um, You need to know uh, I'm not going to be here tomorrow when you share. I don't think I could have told her she won the Publishers Clearinghouse Weekstakes. She'd been any happier. She said, whoo, I'm so glad. She said, I've been praying all week. You'd be sick and wouldn't be able to come to work tomorrow. And I said, well, you don't have to pray that. (laughs) But the next day I came back and I slipped into a young man who was an intern with us then who's a pastor in Florida now. And I said, hey, tell me, how did she do? Oh, I told the story how she was a Christian, wandered away, and then she told the story how it was the sickness and death of her grandfather that got her attention. And I left that day. I sat in my car, and I thought, wow. My mind went back to him coming to my office with a broken heart and praying for his grandkids. His kids were in church, but his grandkids weren't. And I remember on one occasion he prayed, and he said, Lord, whatever you've got to do, if you need to take me to glory, I want you to do it to get their attention. It was sometime later that he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, fought it two and a half months, and it was pretty severe, and he died. And it was in that two and a half months that she got her heart right with God, wrote him a letter. Father read it to him on his deathbed. And I thought when I left that day, wow, sure would be neat if, really be neat, wouldn't it? If, if she could, if he could just be here to see how she's serving the Lord, and her husband became a Christian, and he's deacon at their church, and I just wish he could have, man, if he could have just seen it. Because it was really his sickness and death, his willingness that got her attention. And I remember as I was thinking about that, and I was talking to the Lord, I looked around. You ever have one of those moments when you're talking to God and you just look around and see if there's anybody else there? And I said, Lord, I've never asked you this before, but I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. I said, if you're in heaven today and you see my uncle walking on the streets of heaven, would you go over and tell him for me, hey, have I got news for you. You know the granddaughter that broke your heart, the granddaughter you didn't think would make it? She stood today and blessed my name. Would you just tell him for me that his granddaughter has come home? You see, I wish I could tell you that, boy, here's a surefire farm to check these things off and your kid's going to be serving God. I can't do it. 
And the reason I can't is because God designed service to him to be a choice. And they make the choice to walk away. They are the only one who can choose to, be, to go home. The young man in that story had to take the journey home by himself. Now, when he got home, things changed. But they have to make that choice. And I can't. What I've talked to you about tonight is removing those barriers so when your prodigal comes to themselves, they know they can go home. You see, sometimes prodigals are in hog pens, but home is not where they think they can go. It's not a safe place for them. What I'm talking about tonight is you removing those barriers and you being willing to say tonight, whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. Whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. Whatever it is. And you know what? You may not see your grandchild, your daughter, son, come back to the Lord here. But one day you may be walking on the streets of heaven and the Son of God says, have I got news for you. Your prodigal has come home. Would you bow your heads with me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Instrumentalists are coming. and I realize as I said at the beginning tonight, This is sometimes a very difficult and emotional time because it causes us to relive the pain or it exposes the pain of having children or grandchildren that have walked away. And you remember what I said earlier, this is a safe place. Emotionally, spiritually, it's a safe place. And I want you to know tonight that I know that Brother Blake and Brother Roger, your staff, they know some of your stories, and it's not important whether they know the story or not. But it is, I think, important that they know that you're saying whatever it takes so they can pray for you and with you. And I do not want you to be reluctant tonight, and I do not want you to be embarrassed. But in just a moment, I'm going to have a prayer. And when I finish that prayer, we're going to stand. And when we stand, I'm just going to ask that we give people privacy tonight. And so when we stand after the prayer, and I'll tell you when, we're just going to let the instrumentalists play. And we're going to be standing, but we'll remain with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. And Brother Blake is going to be here, and I think Brother Roger is here. And you can just slip out. You may want to come as a couple, as an individual. You just come to say, I'm saying whatever it takes. Give them the privilege of praying with you. Even if they know your story, there's something freeing about doing that in a service. And don't you think for one moment you're the only person here tonight with a wayward child? Oh, no crowd this size, there's a lot of people. And there's a lot of stories people have that they've never told anybody in Decatur, Alabama. And they have that pain. But I want you to know tonight, it's safe. And I just want you in a moment, if you're walking through those steps as an individual, a couple, you just come and just say, I'm doing whatever it takes to see my prodigal come back to a right relationship with the Lord to make good choices. Would you do it tonight? Father, 
let this be a place of freedom tonight. And literally in the next few moments that those in this building whose hearts are heavy because of a wayward son or daughter, they may, Lord, even be visiting and don't normally go to First Baptist. But, Lord, let them know they have the freedom tonight to come to say to Brother Blake, we're not from here, but we're just saying tonight whatever it takes. Lord, I pray you would give people that freedom tonight that literally, as we'll stand in a moment, that two, three, four, six, ten people cross this building will slip in the aisle to come. And I'm going to thank you as they're coming now to say, no more guilt. I'll walk in strength doing whatever it takes. That is my prayer. Our heads are still bowed. Our eyes are closed. Would you just go ahead and stand where you are? Everyone is standing right now. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. Brother Blake is coming. Other staff is coming. Right now, as just the pen is placed, you go ahead right now and you slip out and come to say to one of them, I am saying tonight, whatever it takes, don't be embarrassed. You can come on right now. Would you do it?